I'm going to invite you to go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14. If you do not have sermon notes out of the by out of the bulletin, raise your hand. The ushers have several of those. They'll hand those to you so you can follow along. In the in the missionary letters that we get, you probably have seen or will see here shortly, one of our missionaries carried out a deed that I found very commendable. They had heard that there are several people in the field that they have ministering and where they're working with. And in that field, there's been a lot of civil unrest and civil strife to the point that some of the believers there had suffered family loss in random shootings. So the missionary that you are familiar with and without giving details because we're online, he traveled overseas, did some visiting with those people just to be an encouragement, just to make that special trip to help them out. I was hearing about one of you folk here not too long ago, that somebody came here a while back, visited our services on a Sunday, that there was a busy time, they were conversing before and after the service with this individual who just happened to be coming into the area, and they were sharing with one of you that they were going to be having a truck coming in tomorrow, and they had family members that were going to be helping them move, and you offered to help show up and to be there, and they said, well, no, no, we have enough family members, but then you said, I'll provide the meal for these people. And you provide for all the movers in just within 24 hours doing that to somebody who had a need that you had just met in that service. Commendable. Commendable. Commendable that some of our teens have had this experience in the last weeks, months, where they have heard about another teen struggling and inflicting to themselves some personal pain. And you took it upon yourselves to reach out and to contact parents or authorities, pastors, whoever, who could get involved and provide the assistance to that young person who was so troubled. Commendable. Very commendable. Commendable that some of you have uh, gone over and done the rest home services of late. And then even in that rest home service made this announcement. If you would like us to come back on another day, rather than just for the services, we'll come back and visit you personally. Just let us know. Isn't that exactly what the Bible tells us we're supposed to be doing? That we're supposed to be reaching out, helping those who have needs, especially like James talks about, the widows, those who are fatherless, that we go out of our way to minister to other individuals. Isn't that what James talks about? What is true faith? True faith isn't just coming and making a profession and gathering on a Sunday morning. It is living it out during the week that if somebody comes and says that they have a need, that you do more than say, well, God bless you be warmed and filled, but you show your faith. You act it out by being concerned, by distributing. Isn't that exactly what we are encouraged to do, like in First Thessalonians, where Paul writes and says, I exhort you, warn those who are out of step, comfort that is, encourage the feeble-minded is those who are small-souled. Literally, the idea that they are very discouraged. They don't have much fight left in them. And support the weak. The word literally in the weak is the same that James talks about, that he says and translates those who are sick. Isn't this what Paul writes to the Romans? Distributing to the necessity of the saints, to the point that you're rejoicing with those who rejoice. You're, you have a camaraderie. You have a helpful spirit and heart, and you're encouraging. Isn't this what Jesus even told the people that he was preaching to when he gave that illustration, that story about the Good Samaritan. And then he says, go on, you guys do likewise. All of you, 
do likewise. Help somebody out in need. Now he's preaching that to the Jewish people of his day who as a whole, they were showing that they were drawing back. They weren't reaching out. And he is challenging his disciples to his audience to break the mold of the culture. That culture of that time was all about why, you know, don't get involved. Be careful and protect yourselves. Do you, do you find a parallel to our culture? That there's a sense that we got to be careful. Don't get involved. You know, watch your back. The, the Jews weren't always like that. The Jews at one time, there's a, there's a story where we find one of our God forbids, where two times in this whole text that they say, God forbid that we would basically not help out individuals who are in desperate need. One is in 1 Samuel 14. In 1 Samuel 14, let me set the stage for the story. It's a, it's a long story, and I don't mean to bore you, but you can follow along and even do some reading or look up the verses that we'll put up here in chapter 13, 14, give you a sense of what's going on. Saul has just been inaugurated king. He has never led in any battle at this point. And right about that time, the Philistines come and invade the territory. When the Philistines come in, they're, they're bringing a lot of troops. They've been, they've been bothering the Jews for years. They've been keeping the Jews down to the point that the Jews didn't have any weapons. The Philistines had kind of ruled over them, but you know, would come during the harvest season and raid. And the Jews were down to just basically two swords left in their camp. And that is Saul, the newly appointed king, and his son Jonathan. Well, the Philistines come in at harvest time, and when they come in this time, they bring a massive amount of troops. They bring some 30,000 uh, troops that are, that are invading with chariots alone, plus they have their marching army, plus they have 6,000 horsemen. And when they come in, Saul is going to resist them. He's the new king. He's got to get people to, to try to stop this invasion. And so he gathers his people together where the Philistines are, are hunkering down in their encampment, and Saul's preparing to go to battle against them. He sees this vast number. And he knows that before they go to battle, they need God's help. And he had heard that the prophet had said, now wait, when you get there to Gilgal, just wait. Just wait. Just wait. I'll show up and I'll pronounce blessings before you get into conflict. But because there's the enemy looking over the valley, he's getting antsy. He's getting, he's getting you know, nervous about it. And he should be. Because about this time, some of his troops with him his troops numbering 3,000 against 30,000 chariots. Some of his troops are starting to fade away. And so Saul, in his reaction, he makes sacrifice. He violates his office. In those days, if you remember, the, the king was not to make sacrifice. He's not the priest. And so he goes and makes sacrifice. And just when he finishes, then the prophet shows up and says, What are you doing? What are you doing? Because you haven't been patient and waited upon the Lord. And he gets a severe rebuke. Now, part of it, remember, his troops are dwindling. By the time that we read in chapters 13 and 14, the battle is ready to commence. Saul's army against this 36,000 plus army, Saul's army is down just to 600. The odds are not in his favor. Okay, And then if you read the account, and if you sit down with a map, you'll figure it out that here's Saul's troops... And there's three different, this will work perfect, didn't even think about it. this. There's three different areas to get to Saul's troops for Jews from other parts of the region. And so he's in this encampment, and the Philistines block this road, block that road, and block this road, or should we say these valleys. And so they're totally cut off from any kind of help. And this is a desperate moment. 
36,000 army without the marching corps against 300, 300 who are cut off. This is not Thermopylae. This is not going to be, you know, the 300 are going to be invincible. They are just petrified. They don't know what to do. And it's at this moment that all of a sudden we read that the battle flips. It changes. And in chapter 14, if you jump down to verse 23, after it gives uh, the rest of the story, it's very clear that the Jews, would, God makes it very clear, they didn't win the battle. The Lord, notice how to emphasize, the Lord saved Israel. How did he do that? How did God come in and turn everything upside down on the Philistines? It all goes back to the prince. Prince Jonathan, the only other one with the sword. Prince Jonathan sees this as totally helpless. And in his mind, it's like, you know, we're going to die one way or the other. If we go to battle, we'll probably get beat. So why don't we just, you know, instead of just wait here to be slaughtered, let's take the battle to them. And if the Lord be with us, Maybe we can, we can turn this thing on its head. And so what he does, he and his armor bearer decide they're going to attack one of these outposts, one of these garrisons of the Philistines. And so he comes, approaches it. And he told his armor bearer, he said, you know, it might be that the Lord will work for us. And so we're going to just trust the Lord. And so when we get there, we're not going to hide. We're not going to sneak up on them. We're going to come walking in the open. This isn't your best battle plan strategy. We're going we're gonna to be there, so if any sharpshooters are up there, they could pick us off. We're just going to walk in the open plain, and we're, gonna, we're going to stand there, and they're going to start saying stuff to us. If they say to us, come on up, we'll probably, you know, we think the Lord will give it to us. If they decide to come on down, I don't know what's going to happen. So he and his armor bearer, they go out, they walk up towards the garrison that's up on top of the hill, and they stand there, and the guys in the garrison, which number far more than two, the guys in the garrison start mocking Jonathan. And they start saying, oh, you came out of your holes, you, you Jews came out of your caverns, you've been hiding from us. Why don't you come on up here and we'll, we'll teach you a thing or two what battle is like. And Jonathan realizes, you know what, the Lord's in this. The, I had said, if... If they, taunt, they invite us up, then that probably means the Lord's going to give us the victory. So he says to his armor bearer, let's just go up. And now they're, they're climbing in broad daylight, wide open. They're going to go uphill up this, this side of this mountain. They're going to be the ones tuckered out, not the Philistines waiting for them. And so they go up and they get up into this encampment. And when they get up there, they engage the Philistines. And these two guys, after they've climbed the hill, after they get up there, they beat all the Philistines in the garrison. They defeat them. It's a hand of God. It's a hand of God giving them victory. And so it's very clear that they get, you know, they get with God's help, they get the victory. And uh, then what happens is news starts spreading real quickly amongst the Philistines and amongst the Jews. Because somebody's heard the noise of a battle two against whatever their numbers were, okay, that it talks about. And so they've heard the noise of the battle that's been taking place. And the Philistines, about that time, they're getting the... Somebody's texting. Somebody's doing something. News is spreading quick that our garrison has just been beaten by two Philistines, uh, two Jews. And so the Philistines, they start getting fearful. How is it our, our troops, that are multiple in number, get beaten by two maybe, maybe the God of the Jews isn't going to let us win. Maybe our gods aren't powerful enough because we're in their land. 
And about that time, an earthquake takes place. You read about it in the text, that there's a tremor. And so, along with the news and their suspicions that maybe the God of this territory is, is you know, getting active, all of a sudden the ground quakes and fear smites the Philistines. And the Philistines go into disarray. They start running all... Oh, by the way, in the story, if you read, that there have been a number of other non-Jews, non, I should say non-Philistines, some of them are Jews that have deserted, some are peoples from other encampments, they have yoked up with the Philistines, and they've been fighting with the Philistines because some of those non-Jews didn't like Saul. And so when the earthquake happens, and when they hear that two have beaten you know, the dozens and dozens, all of a sudden, these who are standing next to the Philistines, but not Philistines, they start hacking at the Philistines. That's why you read in the text that all of a sudden there was fighting in the camp of the Philistines. And you read further in the text that it's some of those who, uh, who were Jewish in background, but who weren't fighting for Saul at the beginning of the battle. They all of a sudden, the Philistines find themselves, the ground shaking, some of the non-Philistine uh, troops with them are fighting against them, so they start running. They start taking off. Panic ensues. And the Philistines, they're, they're trying to get out of here. They're trying to leave. They're trying to get home. And they're going to have a 15-mile hike to get home. Saul, in the meantime, hears, and see, hears about the, the battle taking place, doesn't know who's all there. He sees the ranks being broken. All of a sudden, the paths, passes are open that, fill, that other Jews could join him. And the passage says that a number of Jews who were deserting heard about it and they came running. And his numbers are swelling. All of a sudden, he's going to get the upper hand. And so he's got a chance to attack. But he knows that according to Deuteronomy, you've got to get the priest's blessing before you go to battle. And so he calls for the priest. While he can just sit, picture the scene. He's... Come on, come on, pray. And he's looking over here. Come on, hurry up, get your prayer done. Oh, oh, oh there they go, there they go. Come on, come on. You know how you get into conversations with somebody and they're not looking at you? Okay, and they're really preoccupied over here. You can imagine that's the scene that Saul is preoccupied. And finally he just says to the priest, oh, stop, we got to get moving. And he brushes the priest off. Because he's so intent and so in such a hurry to get into the battle. And he's so determined he's going to beat them. And so what happens is they start chasing the Philistines through rivers, woods, it talks about, in the hills. And it's going to go for 15 miles if you do this study. And they're chasing him. And they're following after him. Saul makes an order. And Saul declares, this is my order for the day. And this, this is early morning and Saul started. This is my order for the day. Nobody of you who are in my army are to eat anything for the rest of the day until we beat the Philistines. Okay, that's his new order. That's his general command. Why would, why would somebody give such an order? Well, let me rephrase that. Why is that such a dumb order? Yeah, yeah, I mean, if you go all day and you're working hard, what happens to your stamina and strength? It's going to be diminished. And so he's, he's hurting his own army, but he's so rash, he's so excited. And, and remember, he's kind of been somewhat impulsive. He's just been rebuked. He's just been rebuked that, that he was too hasty in offering sacrifice. Maybe, 
Maybe he says, uh, you know, this fast will get God's pleasure. We don't know what really motivated him other than it's really a dumb order. It's really foolish, not thinking through. And so what happens, it, we read the text, and we're getting, I'm getting to the point here. Okay, the army is distressed. That's how it describes the Israelites. They beat the Philistines, but they're distressed. That is, they're worn out. And by the end of the day, they're not able to totally beat all the Philistines because they've just run out of gas. And at the end of the day, what makes it worse is when the Philistines are gone, they can't chase them anymore. They're too tired. They, you know, they slouch back to the camps of the Philistines and they find all kinds of animals. And they find foodstuffs. And the passage says that they leap on the foodstuffs and they start slaying the animals to eat. But they don't drain the blood. Because that takes time. And they are just absolutely famished. And so now it's reported to King Saul that the troops are violating our dietary code. Because true or false, the Jews were forbidden to eat blood. True? That's true. Okay, it's true. And so now the people are, he, he realizes I made a real problem, and so he's trying to correct the problem. But he hasn't given up the battle. The next day, the next day he says, let's go to battle. And calls the priest. Okay, priest, does God want us to go to war? And God doesn't answer. There's no answer, and he doesn't understand it. He is advised and figures out that it's probably because something happened yesterday in the battle that somebody didn't obey one of the orders, and therefore God isn't, God isn't moving and in in affirming, and so maybe somebody's been disobedient, and so he, he says, let's cast lots. Let's find out what's gone on. And they start casting lots, and it works down to just finally the, you know, the, the lots point, it's you or your son. Something between you and your son, the king and Jonathan. And that's when Jonathan says, well, yeah, dad, I heard you gave an order. And he heard it only after the, after the part of the day had gone by. And what had happened, and they find out that it's Jonathan, and Jonathan had disobeyed the king's order, the king says, you're going to die. I'm going to have you slain. I'm going to have you executed. He is extremely zealous at this moment to, um, to make sure that his dumb order is followed to the nth degree. Why? Because, because he's, he's just, he's vacillating so much. He's going overboard at this point. He's swinging the pendulum. That, you know, at one, one moment he doesn't obey God's commands, but now he's going to make sure everybody obeys his commands. And he's just in that irrational mode. That's just Saul. It's, it just figures. What had happened is during the battle the day before, Jonathan never heard the order. You can't eat food. Why not? Why didn't John, Jonathan hear it? He was out fighting the battle. He was already in that garrison when Saul, and fighting the Philistines, when Saul gave the order to his troops. He wasn't with the troops. And so what had happened during the course of the battle, Jonathan had stopped and saw some honey that was in the ground, and he reached down and refreshed himself with the honey. And one of the other soldiers said, oh, you can't do that. The king told us we couldn't do that. 
And Jonathan had to respond. He says, oh, that's a terrible, terrible uh, rule that my dad made. It's awful. And anyway, what happened is Jonathan is, Jonathan is found out that he has eaten honey and disobeyed a really foolish government rule. And the king says, I'm going to have you killed. It's going to have the prince killed because he ate some honey. And the people respond. That's where we get to this, God forbid, verse 45. The people said, well, look at verse 44. Saul answered and said, God so do so to me, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. And the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has wrought this great salvation in Israel? Be it far from us, or God forbid. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he hath wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he died not, because he's the hero. Without him, there would have been no victory. And the rule that was made that, his, that dad wants to, to, to uh, make sure is followed is a silly rule. And the people respond properly. They rise up against the government head, and they say, you can't do this. He's innocent of a real crime. He didn't do anything that violated our, our Jewish laws. In fact, if anybody caused any violation of our Jewish laws from God, it is Saul who made, who made it to the point that the people were drinking blood. And so the people rescued him. They determined that they would do what they could to rescue an innocent man. Even though there was a government rule made. This isn't the only time. There's another time when people went way out of their way to get involved to rescue somebody. It's chapter 20. Chapter 20, the first couple of verses. What has happened now, 15 years, let's fast forward. It's 15 years later. Saul has been on the throne for 15 years. Um, it has been foretold that, that Samuel has predicted David will eventually become the new king. Saul doesn't know that quite uh, all of the story, but David has defeated Goliath. David has won the, the hand of the king's daughter, so he's a son-in-law to King Saul. But King Saul wants to get rid of David. David's popular with the people. David is, is well-liked well in the troops. So we read that twice he tries to spear him to the wall while he's, while he's in the king's palace. Now, wouldn't you like that relationship with your dad-in-law? That he's throwing daggers, literally throwing daggers at you. And then it goes, it says that Saul wanted David to go out into battle in such a way that the odds would be against him he'd be killed in battle. And then we read that David ordered everyone in the household, all the servants, to kill David. To get rid of David. But you know, by this time you would think you're not wanted in your dad-in-law's house. You get that impression. And then we read in chapter 19, while David was playing the harp, his father-in-law tried to kill him again. This time with another javelin, another spear. And then we read that David, David went to his own house there nearby the courthouse, uh, the, the, the king's court, and Saul sends messengers, assassins, to David's house to kill him. And David's wife... Saul's daughter heard about it, so she helped him climb out the window and escape. And then David runs into the wilderness to get away from his creepy father-in-law. And when he goes in the wilderness, the king takes troops and goes after him and tries to chase him down. 
It is at this moment that David encounters the prince Jonathan. And we read chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. That when they get together, that they meet. And it says in verse, verse 1, David fled from Naoth to Ramah and came and said to before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my sin or iniquity? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan responds to David, God forbid you will not die. Behold, my father will do nothing, either great or small, but that he will show it to me first. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. My dad is not going to be able to kill you, and I will be able to inform you of any other plots that come up. I'll help you. And here it is. The prince is going to help defend and protect David. And think this through. The king has legal authority. The king has the right, if you would call it that, he has the orders to have David killed. But Jonathan says, no, you're innocent. I'm going to do what I can to help you out, despite it being legal. He says that, that even though it's happened multiple times, I will intercede and I will help you. Um, despite the fact that there's a whole lot of other people helping Saul, the servants of the household, the troops, here is Jonathan saying, no, I am going to risk myself by trying to protect you who are innocent. I will get involved even though there's a risk to my life. That's the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan stops to help out the man who is beaten, though he doesn't know if there's a risk to his life. Are the thieves still around? He's, he's the type that would stop his car to assist somebody Despite the fact that, well, maybe, maybe there could be a threat to me. He is going to do what he could. Or, or, or helping the fatherless. Or helping somebody who has a special need. The, the Bible gives us an account that what we learn from this and from other passages, God forbid that we would ignore helping other people in need when it's within our powers to do so. God forbid. God forbid that we would, you know, would do nothing when there are innocent people who are suffering under laws. The, the most classic illustration of this, an application is, is there an element of people in our society who it is legal to afflict harm, bodily harm to those individuals? And it's a rotten law, but it's legal to take innocent people's lives? Yes? Not in America. Abortion. You think this through. Should we do nothing when we know of somebody being threatened by family members? Should we just, should we do nothing when all of a sudden somebody's integrity, somebody's life is being verbally attacked and slaughtered? God forbid that we would get involved and pass on the gossip. What should we do? What should we do when all of a sudden there are people who, for circumstances that are not their, their choosing, all of a sudden they find themselves without income, without a job, or in some sick situation? Should we just stand by and say, well, God bless you, and do nothing? The Bible demands, calls for us who are believers that we would go and help out in individuals that have special needs, that have discouraging moments, that need encouragement. God forbid we do nothing when there's people around us who have needs. And we could do something to help. More than just talk about it on a Sunday morning. More than just say, wish people would do something. 
you personally actively get involved in visiting the widows, helping those who are fatherless, reaching out and assisting those who have some needs financially, doing something as a family, as a teen, as adults, caring and not just withdrawing. Now the opposite of it is in David's life, another story where he said, there's a God forbid that I would take advantage of people. In this, in this account, in First, First Chronicles, is where I want you to jump with me. First Chronicles chapter 11. There is a story that illustrates David, David refusing to have people wait upon him, serve him, sacrifice for him, because he deserves it. In, in this account, in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, it is, uh, it is David's been king for a long period of time. And in this story, it's giving us the, the uh, account of David's mighty men. And it's listing off 30 different men, talking about how they were his bodyguards, his elite military force, and these individuals, it's giving some of their exploits. In this story, in 1 Chronicles, he's going to give the exploits of three of the men. It doesn't give us the names. But it just tells us there was three of them who did something very exceptional. And it sets the scene that David and his troops are running. They're running from the Philistines. He is being hunted down at the moment. And what happens is he goes to a cave of Adullam. The cave of Adullam is just a few miles from David's hometown of Bethlehem. The Philistines have occupied Bethlehem. And David is there with his mighty men. And while he's there, David, uh, he expresses something. Look at down to verse 15. Now, three of the 30 captains went down to the rock of, uh, to David, into the cave of Adullam, and the host of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in this cave, and the Philistines' garrison was then at Bethlehem. David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is at the gate. And David is remembering that when he was a child, there was a favorite something that he thoroughly enjoyed. Obviously, they're in this cave. He's probably thirsty. And he's longing for... Any of you ever do this? Do you ever get a craving sometimes for something that you grew up and it was a food? I mean, some of you get a craving for scrapple. Or you get a craving for some candy that you used to thoroughly enjoy. Ever happen? You, you, you say, oh, right about now, I could use you know, a thick chocolate malt. And I could dip my fries in it and eat it. Oh, it's good. You got to try it. You got to try it. Okay. You got to try it. You have to have a craving to eat that. I know. So David has that moment where he says, oh, I wish I had the drink. And then read the rest of the next couple of verses. Three of those men say, let's get it. Let's go down, let's break through the ranks of the Philistines, and let's get David a drink of water from that well that he's talking about. Why would they do that? Why do you think they'd do that? The passage doesn't tell us. Why do you think these three men would want to go and risk their lives, fight the Philistines just for a drink of water for David? What's that? Devotion? Do they like David? Absolutely. They like him so much they're willing to do what? Die for him. And so they love David. They care for David. And so they go and you read the story and some of you aren't going to like the way it ends. If you're unfamiliar with it, you're not going to like what happens here. 
Okay, David says in verse 17, oh, that one would give me a drink of the water of the well. This is not a command. It's just a statement. You know how you, your, your husbands, you know how your wife just has to say, oh, I wish somebody else would wash the clothes tonight. And you just jump to it. You just want to please her so bad, you're just going to do the laundry. And then you'll say, and I want to please her so bad, I'll clean the whole house. And I'll iron, Right? So, verse 18, the three break through the host of the Philistines, drew the water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, took it, and brought it to David. Now, this is the part you're not going to like. David would not drink of it. He poured it out. And he said, God forbid it me that I should do this thing. Shall I drink the blood of these men that, they have, that have put their lives in jeopardy? For the jeopardy of their lives, they brought this water to me. Therefore, he would not drink it. And you look at that, and some people, and authors write about this. They write about, you know, David refusing to drink, and how David was so inconsiderate and rude. And, you know, he despised what they had done. Really? Is that what David, his response? No, actually, David's very moved by it. He is, he is moved to the point of, do you want to put a different emotion to it? Do you want to put, what was, what was David feeling? You got a guess? Unworthy. Unworthy. Another word for that? Humility. Humility. He's, it's not that he doesn't appreciate it, but David's response is, I am so humbled by their generosity. I don't deserve it. And if somebody is going to risk their life, the one that they should risk their life for is God. This this is such a sacrifice that I'm going to give their water that they brought me as a sacrifice to God. Rather than me benefit from it, let me do this. I'm not going to pour it out. Um, let, me, let me just pour it out as an expression, as an, a libation unto the Lord. That God deserves, God, God deserves what you men have done is such, such a humbling act. It is something that is so noble. It is something that is so gracious of you. We're, we're going to give this to the Lord to your credit that you're serving the Lord this way. It's amazing. It's amazing. And he's humbled by it. That leads me to this, this thought that, you know, the, let me jump forward, that uh, whole idea that he knew they risked their lives and he wasn't going to keep it for himself. He's of a mindset that even though he's the leader, he comes to a point that he says, I don't deserve your great sacrifice. I don't deserve... And I'm not going to take advantage of you guys. I'm not going to presume that you, that you need to serve me. We're serving the Lord together. He's, he's of this mindset that he is not going to become so proud that he assumes others have to serve him. What a mindset. What a mindset for us to work at. That we don't become so arrogant that we assume that everybody owes me at work, at school, at home. Mom and dad owe me to make sure that the house is at perfect temperature. Mom and dad owe me make sure that all of my stuff is taken care of, my clothes and stuff like that. 
My kids owe me because I'm so special that they owed it to me to go out and shovel last night without being told. That my spouse owes me, that my church owes me, that you make sure that my parking lot is shoveled out nicely because I deserve it. And again, we want to be concerned about one another. We want to be helpful. But God forbid that we come to a point that we assume others need to do the extra mile because I'm special. That we would take advantage of other people's appreciation and affections to take advantage of those people. God forbid that we would take the devotion that others are showing, even for the Lord, and say, I get the credit. God forbid that we would do that. In fact, when I go to the New Testament, time and time again, the challenge is for you and I to be serving, not to be served. You and I saying, hey, listen, if, if we think that we want to be a leader, then let's be a servant. You and I, time and again, to, he reminds them, within a short period of time, the same people, he repeats this lesson several times when you take the accounts as they march to Jerusalem in the last few weeks, he reminds them, if you're going to be great, you've got to serve. You've got to serve instead of being serving, served. He says that even the Son of Man, myself, I didn't come to be ministered to. I came to minister. He sets the example. Serving others. Serving others. And we read in Paul, writing, uh, Peter writing about the gifts that we have spiritually. We use those to minister to one another, not to say, look at me. That what we do is we realize that we have to have this lowliness of mind that says, let's serve others. Let's serve others. Let's do for others instead of you guys do for me. The whole attitude of the New Testament is this idea that we serve one another. That we go out of our way. God forbid that we would come to a point that we think we deserve to be served. God forbid that I come to a point that I say, because, you know, here I am, I'm the pastor, you better, you better serve me. Make sure that, you know, you please me and all. How, how unlike Christ that would be. God forbid we'd assume that others owe us because we're special. There's one other God forbid that I want to just focus on, and it's Luke chapter 20 this morning. But it is such a critical one. Please bear with me for a few moments as we go to Luke 20. This is the one God forbid that when it's expressed, you don't want to duplicate this one. This is the one negative that's, that is a negative you don't want to touch. Jesus Christ expresses or tells the story, and the response to his story is, God forbid. And you don't want to be like those individuals that say, God forbid. What is happening is Jesus is in the last week of his life on earth. It's Tuesday of the Passion Week. He's in Jerusalem. He's speaking in the temple. And several times while he's speaking in the temple, he's going to be verbally attacked by the Jewish leaders. This attack comes from the Sadducees and the leaders of the, of the temple, the high priest, and they come to Jesus and they start challenging him. What gives you the authority? What gives you the authority? What gives you authority? Why should we listen to you? And he responds with a parable. A parable in Luke chapter 20, starting with verse 9. A certain man planted a vineyard and let forth to he loaned it, he, he rented it out to husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. And at the season, he sent a servant to the husbandmen that they should give him the fruit of the vineyard. 
The, the, the whole the story is just very, very, very common in Bible days. It would be common if you were living there. You owned a piece of property. You leased it out to others. They were the tenant farmers. Come harvest season, you want to be paid. And so you might send your collectors. You would send another servant to come and say, Okay, payday. You've rented the property. You use it. We get a portion of the harvest. That makes perfect sense. And what happened in this case, the sharecroppers, it says that the farmers, the husbandmen, at the end of verse 10, beat him and sent him away. So the landowner, he again, he sent another servant. They beat him also and entreated him shamefully and sent him away empty. He sends a third, verse 12. They beat him, wounded him, and cast him out. Then the, the owner of the property, the lord of the vineyard, he said, what am I going to do? I will send my beloved son. It may be that they will reverence him when they see my son. And so we have the story that they come, they try to collect. And surely when they see it's my boy coming as the collector, nobody's going to harm my boy because he's my boy. They're going to respect me because now I've cranked it up. I'm sending my son as my personal representative. They dare not touch him. However, you read the next couple of words. It says that when they saw the son... They decided that if they killed the son, the land would be theirs. Here's why, by the way. In Jewish Israel, in this time, if you uh, were farming somebody's land, and they died, and they had no heir, you could claim the land. It could be yours. So they're looking and saying, if we kill his son, then the property's ours because squatter's rights. There's no other heir. But they haven't thought about this fact. If we kill his son... The father's still alive. And what might the father do? Yeah, right? If, if you have no heir, we get the land. He doesn't need an heir because he's still alive. Okay. And so they forget that factor. And you read the story. It says, but when the husband's men saw them, verse 14, they reasoned, this is the heir. Let's kill him. The inheritance may be ours. Duh. The dad's not dead. Okay, So they cast him out of the vineyard, killed him. What therefore? Jesus asked the crowd that's listening to him. And, and he's, he's talking to Jewish leaders who are in charge of God's vineyard, Israel. He says, What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? Now in other texts that give the same story, there's an insert here. Okay, The insert from Matthew 21 is... The Jewish leaders say he should come and destroy them and give them the land and give their, the land to other tenants. This doesn't say that they said it. So we interject. And so they said the, man, the father should come and destroy them. And Jesus says the father should come and destroy them. You're right. Who have they just pronounced sentence upon? themselves. Because if you understand what happens here, Jesus is telling the story and they just now, according to the other text, right about now the light goes, you know, ding, ding, ding. He's talking about us. He's given a story about us and they get really, really angry. And, and the story is about them. The owner is God. The vineyard is Israel. Several times in the Bible, Israel's the vineyard. Tenant farmers are the religious leaders. Those who are taking care of, overseeing. The servants are the Old Testament prophets. God has sent multiple servants over the years. And the beloved son, it's Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
Now, I, I remind you, it all started with, by what authority do you say what you say? And Jesus has just answered. I've given you my authority. I have come from the Father to send, to collect from you. And so he's told the story. They realize, and the passage says, they become extremely angry. And they make this, and Luke's the only one who has this comment. They respond and they say, God forbid. God forbid that this would happen. What do they mean by that? What do they mean when they say, may it never be? Literally, that's what it reads. May it never be. May it never be that we be like those in your story and reject the master's you know, servants. But they've been killing off prophets for years. How did they respond to John the Baptist? They've rejected him. Um, may it never be that we would reject the Messiah when he comes. Well, what are they doing to Jesus the last few weeks? They have said, you are together with Beelzebub. And so they've accused him at that very moment. May it never be that the land, maybe this is what they mean. May it never be that the land be taken from us and given to another. May it never be that we would be found guilty by God. Surely God would never find us guilty because we're his chosen people. We are righteous. Now that's a may it never be you don't want to repeat. That's a God forbid you don't want to touch. Now Jesus, he puts the exclamation point to the story. He says you will be judged. Whether you deny it or not, you will be judged. And he, and he, and he heightens it by the next two verses. What is it then that is written? And he quotes Psalm 118. The stone which the builders reject, the same is to become the head of the corner. And he's referring to what is called a Hallel psalm that was sung at the Passover season that was predictive of what would happen in the future. And he talks about that idea that there's in the future the stone, whether it be the foundation stone, the corner one, or the keystone there at the top. There's debate amongst the authors. But there's a stone. And the engineers, the ones in charge of the building project, they're going to reject it. But that stone will be raised up by the Lord God Almighty is what it says. Now we know, we know Jesus is the stone. Multiple passages predict he is the stone. We know that. And what, is, what he's referring to is he says that even though you leaders will reject this stone and say it's not good enough, God will raise it up. It's going to be a magnificent thing when God raises it up. And it's going to be stunning, literally stunning. And you won't fully understand it. You'll wonder, how did that person come from Nazareth and Bethlehem and such, from such a noble start and he becomes the Messiah? We, we don't understand it. We don't understand how he could be you know, not trained like us, but he could be the Messiah. And so he's saying, this is a wondrous thing that God has done. And he's predicting and Jesus, we know clearly, he's the foundation stone for what he's building. The work of God that's going to be, you know, the future work of the church and everything. So all of this is, is just a, a phenomenal text where Jesus is declaring, I'm the authority. I'm the authority because I've been sent by God. I'm his beloved son and I am the stone upon which God is going to build the church. He's declaring his authority, but he adds something for the Jews. The next verse he adds and he makes a statement out of that same text. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. What in the world does that mean? Jesus is just said by that verse, he said, judgment will come. 
Those who reject the stone will be judged. There's a proverb. Maybe this will help you out. There's a Jewish proverb, very, very common at this time in history. The Jewish proverb went this way. It had to do with a stone and with a clay pot. And it said this. If a stone falls on a clay pot, ah, too bad for the pot. Then it went this way. If the pot falls on the stone, too bad for the pot. Either way, whether the stone falls or the pot falls on the stone, either way, the pot is going to be, it's going to be obliterated. So if you fall on the stone or the fall, stone falls on you, there's judgment either way, to a different degree. One will be smashed, one will be broken. But judgment is coming to those who reject the stone, Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Now think what those people and how they respond. Put it together. He is saying, if you reject me, you will be judged. And their response is, oh, God forbid. God forbid that we would be judged. Do not make their mistake. Do not insist. Do not insist that you can live any old way you want and there's no judgment. Do not insist that you are in charge of your life that God has loaned to you. Do not insist that you, like the Jews, that you're good enough, you can get your way into heaven. Do not insist that. Do not insist that you don't need Jesus Christ as your Savior. Do not insist that God will never judge or punish people for their sins. Do not insist that, that you will never, ever be judged by God. Do not insist that God will overlook your sins. Do not say, God forbid that I would ever stand before God in judgment day. You will. God forbid that God would send anybody to hell who rejects Jesus Christ. He will. He will. Because the Bible makes it very clear that those who deny what God has said will happen in the future, they are going to face some serious consequences. In the future, there will be judgment day. The only ones who will not suffer the severity of judgment for their sins are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You know, the Bible makes it so clear. He says, he that believes on the Son is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already. Judgment is already passed. The Bible says, neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name. Under heaven given amongst men, whereby we must be saved. Let's put in there, Baptist church. Can a Baptist church save anybody? No. Let's put other names of churches in there. Can any church save anybody? Let's put your parents' name in there. Can your parents save you? No. There is only one person who saves. A preacher was, was, being, was sharing with me that they were preaching in India. And as they were preaching, they were pointing to a fountain of water. And they were saying, Jesus is the fountain of water. If you drink from that water, you will never, ever thirst again. He is the water of life. And there was a Muslim individual that was standing there and said, Oh, oh, oh. our teachings teach that our great God is a great sea. We have much more water than that little fountain in the Muslim faith. And the missionary responded and said, That's fine. But when you drink salt water over and over, what happens? You die. You need the fresh water that Jesus is, the fountain of life. Because he's the only way of salvation. There's a verse that says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? 
And it's in the context of saying, listen to the word of God, listen to the word of God, listen to the word of God. You're not going to escape judgment if you don't listen to the word of God, which was confirmed unto us by the miracles of Jesus Christ, by the apostles, by all those who followed afterwards. You've got to listen to the thought that Jesus and Jesus only saves. Reader's Digest just recently had an article. The, the, the article was called the bridge, the bridge is Out. It told a story of somewhere down south in the floods of this past fall that there was a bridge that had been washed out. This fellow came driving along this road and the rain was still coming and it was dark and he stopped in time. He pulled off to the side of the road. He got out and he tried to wave down the next car. But they ignored him. They just kept on going, plunged into the water. The next car ignored him, plunged into the water. He knew he needed to do something. So he took off his coat, stood out in the middle of the road, and he finally stopped the next car. And the guy rolled down the window, screamed at him, are you crazy? What are you doing? I almost hit you. If you didn't stop, you would have gone off the bridge. That's washed out. That man put his car broadside in the road, and they stopped dozens of others. At least he listened to the warning. Don't you just bypass the warning. Don't you just say, I'm not going to listen, I'm not going to vote. You need Jesus Christ. You need him as your personal savior to forgive you of your sins. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How do you do that? By praying and asking Christ to give you forgiveness. Believing that he and he alone is the only one who can provide you an entrance into heaven. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. God forbid, God forbid you would reject that truth like those Jewish leaders did.
your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, and you say this morning, you know, I'm not sure I'm on my way to heaven. Well, you ought to be, you can be. The Word of God says that he has written these things that we may know that we have eternal life. Are you uncertain that you're on your way to heaven this day? Well, then let's, let's make sure you're certain. We're going to have some folk head over to the side door of our auditorium. If you have doubts about your eternal destiny, you're not sure, then why don't you just look up. Others are praying. They have their heads bowed. See over there by that side of the door, people are going. They're headed over there. They want to show you from the Bible what you need to do this morning, what prayer you need to pray so you can be sure you're on your way to heaven. They want to show you from God's word how you can be confident before you leave this day that you have Christ as your Savior and you are on your way to eternity with him. All you need to do right now is just get up, go over and meet one of those people by that door. They'll take you to a private room, show you from the Bible what you need to do, and you pray if you want. You decide. But it won't happen unless you get up and you go over there right now. You go and take this opportunity and find out for sure you're on your way to heaven. Do not, do not make the mistake of those Jewish leaders. Don't say, God forbid, I don't need this. You need this. You must be born again or you cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again or you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You need Christ.